Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Jay Walker. Jay, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me, Josh. Glad to have you here. And uh, I'm going to read a bit about what put us in touch. I mean, longtime listeners of my podcast and readers of my blog know that Washington Square Park and cleaning up there is a big thing for me. And that's what brought me to you. And But then that's not what makes – there's so much that's interesting. That I, So I'm going to read a bit of, of background of uh, – Let's see. The fourth annual Queer Liberation March took place Sunday, June 26. So that's just a couple months ago and ended in Washington Square Park. So I'm going to say a few words about the Reclaim Pride Coalition. So it's a New York-based uh, LGBTQI2S plus activist in alliance with various grassroots community groups nationally and internationally uh, that you run the march. And this year it would focus on freedom, reproductive justice, bodily autonomy, for transgender, black, indigenous people of color. And this year's announcement came shortly after the Supreme Court Roe versus Wade draft opinion. And you were quoted, so I found a couple of quotes, if it's okay with you for me to read your Sure. Uh, from honoring the ancestors ceremony to the gathering in Foley Square to the March step off and its progress through lower Manhattan. This year's queer liberation march for trans and BIPOC freedom, reproductive justice and bodily autonomy was a needed expression of both community and outrage at the state of our nation under this coterie of political operatives masquerading as the Supreme Court. So not pulling punches. Never, uh, never. But then you also said, much more fun, uh, New York City's fierce, fabulous, and intersectional LGBTQIA2S plus immigrant, black, brown, Asian, and allied progressive pro-reproductive justice and trans-affirming communities and families amassed by the tens of thousands with love, unity, and strength of purpose, all of which will sustain them in the trying times ahead as we continue to struggle for liberation. And this is uh, very clear, very strong, and it's it's a march that came about. It's I mean it's the fourth annual, so it hasn't been around that long. But it, it's in the context of an, another march that's been around for a while. And I want to ask about the march, but I want I want to ask about you. And uh, do you mind sharing your background and, and your role? Um, uh, sure. My my personal background. Um, I. Um... I grew up in uh, in Hampton, Virginia. Uh, I moved to New York to attend NYU when I was 18 in 1985. I've been here ever since. Uh, I decided I was going to be in New York when I was about eight years old and visit my great aunt for the first time. I um, first became involved in activism uh, with a group called the October 19th Coalition that was uh, that started after um, the police attacked a. Uh, a political funeral for Matthew Shepard back in the fall of 1998 after after Matthew Shepard was murdered uh, in a hate crime. And uh, then I worked for Gay Men's Health Crisis for um, about a decade. Then I got out of the activist world entirely and worked in real estate for a decade. Uh, and then the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016 uh, kind of shocked me back into the world of fighting for human rights. And I was a founding member of Gays Against Guns. Six months later, Donald Trump was elected, and so I actively joined a lot of different uh, resistance groups. Resistance groups, chief among them, um, Rise and Resist. And out of that work came the resistance contingent of the Heritage of Pride Parade, which is the parade that's been around since 1970, which started as uh, the Christopher Street Liberation Day March, and then eventually you know, became, you know, a parade with floats and bands and all that sort of stuff. 
And then out of the resistance uh, contingent, when uh, after marching in 2017 as part of the resistance contingent, the attitude that the Heritage of Pride organization had toward the resistance contingent and the plans that they had moving into the 2019 50th anniversary of the Stonewall uprising put a lot of people off and it kind of crystallized some feelings in the LGBTQIA2S plus communities about the way that the Heritage of Pride March slash parade had been managed for decades. Uh, you know, the long simmering resentments around the over-corporatization, the over-barricading of the streets, the capitulation to everything that the NYPD tells them to do, the over the overpresence of police in and around the march, uh, combined with the plans that Heritage of Pride announced in March of twenty eight, uh, in March of twenty nineteen, uh, really March of twenty eighteen, for what they were planning that year in preparation for the following year's fiftieth anniversary of Stonewall. All of that together is what prompted the formation of the Reclaim Pride Coalition which sort of worked to counter a lot of Heritage of Pride's plans in 2018, which we did manage to get them to relent on some things, but not their overall ethos that Pride should be a party. Uh, you know, 2018, we're, you know, a year and a half into Donald Trump's presidency. Our, you know, LGBTQIA2S plus communities were under threat all over the place, as were uh, people of color, as were um, immigrants, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on, uh, as were women's uh, reproductive rights. And so, you know, we felt strongly that especially for the uh, 50th year marker of the Stonewall Rebellion, that that year's uh, march needed to be entirely political. Heritage of Pride, uh, the leadership then, Heritage of Pride has new leadership now, which is making some changes and we support the changes that they're making. But the leadership then uh, just wanted to keep as much space as possible for partying and revelry. And we were like, you know what? You can party and you can revel, but you can also do that in the context of demanding the respect for the rights of our communities. And so after several meetings following the 2018 Heritage of Pride Parade, we, um, you know, our, our entreaties being met with deaf ears, uh, the Reclaim Pride Coalition said, you know what? We're going to do our own march next year. We're going to do a march that the march that the people have been hungering for for decades now. And so in 2019, the first queer liberation march started off at Stonewall, went up Sixth Avenue, uh, replicating the route of the very first Christopher Street Liberation Day march, which happened in June of 1970. And that year, 45,000 people participated in our march, even though Heritage of Pride's you know, 50th anniversary of Stonewall March, uh, Stonewall 50 March was, you know, in all the headlines, it was the big deal. It was the, you know, massive coverage. It had international people. It was a part of world pride. And so people were coming in from all over the world that participated in it. But even with all of that going on, there were, you know, 45,000, the vast majority of them, New Yorkers or former New Yorkers or people in the area who had been avoiding the Heritage of Pride Parade uh, for years, because either they felt it was unsafe, they felt it was overbarricaded, they felt it was overpoliced, all of those sorts of things that had been building up. You know, Reese, like one of the, the, the busiest day of the summer, the early summer at Reese Beach, 
uh, was Pride Sunday for years because so many younger people were just so turned off by the Heritage of Pride Parade that they just went to the beach on, the, on Pride Sunday just to avoid all of it, just to get out and avoid all of it. And so there was this hunger there and we fulfilled it. And after that first Queer Liberation March, we decided we were going to do another one. And then Miss Rona came to town in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mayor, rightly so, uh, canceled all uh, public events through the end of June. That you know, he announced that in um, you know March, right when we went to lockdown. And we said, okay, we're going to do something virtual. We're going to do something digital. Uh, and we started working on that. And then um, all of the uh, information about Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and, of course, George Floyd hit in this very powerful moment in May, combined with the death of Larry Kramer um, in late May. And so many of our members were out marching in the streets in those initial George Floyd protests of the reckoning, as we call it. Um, uh, we realized, you know what, we're out here marching every single day. Everybody's masked. We're, you know, we're, we're out here. Uh, and after that first weekend of marches, a bunch of us, you know, made a few phone calls, uh, you know, to each other and said, you know what, we have to do a march where, you know, we have to go out and we have to make that march. We have to make our march, the Queer Liberation March for Black Lives and Against Police Brutality. And, and that, that, you know, tens of thousands of people showed up again. And then we've just continued it ever since. You went back pretty far there, starting at the beginning. And I mean, if you came here, it's funny, I, my dad brought me here I grew up in Philadelphia and I was 10 years old and I realized New York is where I had to be. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I know. It's a powerful thing. Yeah. If you've been here all that time, you must've gone to a lot of the heritage of pride. I mean, you must've gone to yeah. the marches before and seen it evolve over, over decades. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, my first March was with my then boyfriend in at, shortly after we got together in 1988 um, we met uh, both working in a bookstore, a major bookstore called Doubleday Bookshops in Midtown Manhattan on Fifth Avenue and 57th Street. And we uh, went to watch the parade. Uh, and, we're, and then it was really a march. I think we were calling it a parade, you know, because, you know, parade. But, you know, back then, you know, we were wa- watching from the sidelines. And then, as I said, we were both, you know, working in bookstores, both avid readers, both of us wanted to write. And uh, we saw um, uh, a group of gay authors that might have been Penn Foundation or some other group of gay authors. And we were like, oh, let's go march with the gay authors. And so we just stepped off of the sidewalk and we marched with the gay authors. And, you know, that was my introduction to the Pride Parade. And it lasted like that for a couple of years. Then Rudy Giuliani moved, uh, got into office. And suddenly, rather than the sawhorse barricades, which just delineated the march route, uh, Rudy imported those bike rack barricades that we see all over the place, you know, all over the city uh, now. And slowly over the course of, you know, the next few years in, in Giuliani's administration, the march became more and more barricaded, more and more constrained. The areas in the West Village around where the march ended just became a rabbit warren of barricades and became unpassable. Just, you know, you didn't, nobody knew where you could walk, where you could walk. It was terrible. And, you know, after a few years of that, probably by, probably by around 
90, 95 or 96, I stopped going. Then I worked for GMHC and then GMHC always has a contingent there. So I would march with GMHC. And then when I left GMHC, I, um, you know, maybe went once or twice. And then finally was just like, you know what? I, it, this is just gross. I can't, I can't deal with it. Um, you know, and I'm coming from a place of relative privilege, right? I, I don't have a police record. I, you know, I present in a certain way. I'm, I, um, you know, so, I, you know, I generally speaking, I'm not quote unquote triggered by being in close proximity with, uh, police officers, you know, with a large cadres of, of uniformed police officers, but, uh, being a black man in America, I can understand how so many people from our communities, you know, felt that the space was unwelcome and, and also stopped coming, also stopped participating. Um, and so, you know, I would see that over the years, every now and then I would end up around the parade and, and, uh, and just sort of see, you know, how separate the parade itself was from the onlookers, how it was the sort of performative piece for people standing on the sidelines. And, uh, you know, even though they're frequently themes based on, you know, the, the issues of the day, um, a lot of times it just ends up being, a you know, a, 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 the vast majority of it ends up being, you know, loud music and people dancing in short shorts on floats. And so, you know, it was kind of like the, the, the purpose was lost. Um, you know, the, the moments of political, uh, expression seemed more like afterthoughts rather than the purpose of the parade. And that, you know, continued on, um, you know, up until, up until recent times. What do you say about the barricades changing and how much they're channeling people around? I think that's not just, that's all parades, I think. I mean, I. Yeah, absolutely. Being in Greenwich Village myself, I see that it's definitely the the first Halloween parade, which is the other one that goes by my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's just there's no participation. Yeah, I mean, you said no one knows how to get around. The cops themselves don't know, or maybe they. I don't know if it's intentional, but if I ask them, like, can I cross here? They're like, I don't know, go up there. I'm like, but they just said to come here. Yeah, and- yeah, it's horribly coordinated by the NYPD, and it's completely unnecessary. You know, they use the um they use the rationale that it is a homeland security issue that is protecting people from terrorism that it's for safety but the god's honest truth is that someone airbnb'd a an apartment overlooking halloween parade the um, the heritage of pride parade whatever and decided to start shooting those barricades would actually stop people from being able to get to safety so it's the exact opposite of public safety. What it is, it is the NYPD exerting control and authority and, you know, and, and showing themselves to be in control of the situation, regardless of public safety. Yeah, it's, I don't, this is going off topic, stop me. But one day I was walking home recently, walking down Fifth Avenue toward Washington Square Park, and there was a police cruiser parked not quite underneath the arch. Oh, yeah, that one. Uh huh. And, they had they didn't have the siren on, but they had the lights flashing, and it very I, I can't imagine menacingly. That's not yeah menacingly. It's not going to stop anything. Everyone knows the northwest corner is syringes everywhere. It's full of drugs. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the park is drinking and, and other things that are illegal. As far as I could tell, it's blinding because it's dark and these and 
it's nighttime, but this is very bright. And all I could think of was, this is just a show of dominance. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really a counterproductive one at that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's the same thing at Stop and Fist Quest. It was a show of dominance. They didn't believe that all those black, that, that all those young black men in black, you know, middle class and working class neighborhoods were, were, were criminals, but they needed to show that they had control over the bodies of every single person in those neighborhoods, that they could exert their control over the bodies of anyone there because they were the man. And that's the ethos of modern American police. So there's this big intersection of, of there's a parade or march that you loved at the beginning. And I think you, you, you called out that you, you just walked onto the, onto the yeah. parade at the first yeah. time. And, and that's impossible now. Yeah. In fact, that was the original, that was like one of the main chants in the early days in the seven, before I got here. And the seventies was that the marchers, you know, marching would say off of the sidewalks, into the streets, join us. You know, that was a big part of what it was all about. It was that we are everywhere. It's like, don't just watch, you know, this is your, you know, nowadays there's a chant, um, wake up, wake up. This is your fight too. That a lot of folk that started, um, you know, during the summer of the reckoning, but it was that same sort of idea. It's like, don't just watch. We're marching for your rights too. You need to like stand up for your rights. And it was beautiful. Um, when you look at, you know, footage from, from those years and, uh, that, you know, in, in that notion, that ethos is a threat to the power structure, right? Because in, you know, it's one thing for like, you know, the people that like actively work on stuff to like, you know, uh, plan stuff and maybe, maybe 50 or a hundred or 200 or 300 people, you know, come out and do their thing, but that's just like 300, that's just like a, a few people. But if you're like telling everybody that you pass that you're a part of this too, you need to be a part of this too. That's a that's a threat. So not that it has to be one or the other. To what extent are you? Is this for everyone? And to what extent is this for your community? Or I, I don't want that didn't sound very inclusive. <laughs> I I just what you're saying. I'm, well, you know, everyone who believes in, in in the mission, which is to stand up for really for all human rights, that's really what queer liberation is. That's what Black liberation is. That's what you know. That's what um, Latinx liberation. That's what liberation movements are about. It's about understanding the commonality of humanity, that we are all one human family, and that we, if we don't stand up for for one person who's going to stand up for us. It's the Martin Niemöller poem, first they came for, you know? It's, you know, that's what it's all about. And so that's, and that's the kind of thing that got lost along the way in Heritage of Pride as, you know, because before it was a bunch of like, you know, at the beginning it was a bunch of, you know, mostly poor working class, maybe lower middle class, queer activists who, who were, you know, trying to ensure that their jobs could be protected, they wouldn't be arrested for drinking at a bar, but, you know, all, all those sorts of things. But over time, it became a very white, middle-class, um, heteronormative organization, which happens happened to most of the major LGBTQ organizations over, you know, through the, you know, the 80s and 90s. You know, there was this thing where the AIDS pandemic humanized. There's a horrible way to say it, but in the minds of, you know, people that, you know, weren't 
uh, a direct part and directly connected to queer life. The AIDS pandemic humanized, you know, queer people, uh, made people understand how how fragile our existences were, how, how the fact that that if your partner of 20 years is dying and you can't get to the hospital to be with them or their homophobic parents can fly in from Oshkosh and take control of the medical decisions and bar you, the person they've been with since the parents rejected them 25 years ago, uh, bar you from participating in their healthcare and from visiting and from being with them and comforting them. So, you know, there was this thing at the AIDS pandemic did in uh as a part of of other things cultural things dynasty you know so you know all sorts of things that uh humanize people humanize gay um queer people and uh increased acceptance which then led to employment um stability right and led to the ability to advance in our careers which then led to the notion of, oh, wow, they're professional people with expendable income, which then led to us being a, um, a market that could be exploited, that could be catered to, that could bring in profits to businesses and bring in dividends to stockholders and bring in investors, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's how the you know, things like the Heritage of Pride Parade and other and other pride marches and parades across the country um, started to become more and more corporate. And then once corporations get involved and you're, um, you know, and are, and are, are active participants, well, then the corporations and wealth are who the police have been, you know, silently charged with protecting. You know, it's the unspoken rule of policing that it is to keep those people in line and to protect the interests and property of these people. And so then that invites more police presence to protect the, the, the interests, the needs, and the safety of the corporations that are participating. Watching that happen, I mean, some people watch that happen and they think, great, that's what we want. And, but the, what, the, I mean, it's easy to see what's gained of mainstream acceptance and larger crowds and if you just look at that great but if you look at what's missing what used to be there was it a difficult decision to break or was it i mean you described it as like it was almost reluctant but inevitable and you had to but was it a, was there a gut check involved or was it or was it just like i have to do this i can't stop i'm i'm curious uh, do you mean which decision Oh, to, to do a, a different, to do a separate parade, uh, a separate march. Oh, no, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about for me personally. Yeah. Um, after having participated in the march in 2016, which is when Gays Against Guns made our, our public debut, uh, then in, and then 2017, 2018, after having had that sort of intense relationship with with um, the Heritage of Pride Parade, you know, and really, you know, focused on it and seeing the different ways that different groups were treated, it really, it was, it was not a difficult decision at all to make that break, especially after the shenanigans that Heritage of Pride, under their old leadership, uh, did in uh, in 2018. 
I know, I'll tell you just like a couple of things that were really sort of like key things that they did. First, they allowed the NYPD to dictate their route. The NYPD, you know, the, for, for years and years, the whole idea was you come down Fifth Avenue from the mid-30s and then uh, you go west on Christopher Street and you end in the far west village around Washington Street in Greenwich. And, and then there's a Pride Festival over there. Um, you know, that has you know, sort of been like the norm, you know, for, for years and years. And then in 2018, uh, the NYPD gave them three choices. Okay, you can do this, this, and this. We've had complaints about people defecating in front of stores and therefore, uh, in stores on, on Christopher Street. And therefore, you can't march west on Christopher Street anymore. And so we're giving you these three other options. And those are your only choices. And Heritage of Pride picked what we called the the march to nowhere, which was the horseshoe shape that started in uh, in uh, Lower Chelsea and came down Seventh Avenue, went east across Christopher Street, north on Fifth Avenue to the upper twenties, where it just sort of ended ignominiously with nothing there to welcome the marchers, and people just sort of drifted away. That was one thing. Second thing. They demanded that everyone has to wear wristbands in order to in order to march. And every group that had a every group that um, was marching had to distribute wristbands to all the people from their group that were going to march prior to the march, days before the march, had to pick them up, get them, give them to their people. Everyone had to show a wristband in order to get into the staging area. And then the third aspect of it was that every group was limited by numbers. Meaning that nobody, every group had to be 200 or less people in each marching, in each marching group. And mind you, no individuals could march in the parade. You had to be a part of a group that paid a registration fee in order to participate. Then shortly after that year's march, I, literally on the day of the march after it was over with, I found a sort of a, a, a production booklet. Um, you know, stapled together that had fallen out of one of their organizers' back pockets. And I started going through it. And then I started looking and then I saw, oh, look, this bank that's a corporate sponsor, they get to have 400 people marching in their group. And, uh, you know, and sort of, you know, looking at how, how much they cater to the corporations. And then, of course, the, the issue with the wristbands is that, you know, we have there were people coming in from out of state. Uh, that of marching different act up chapters from different cities have marched like from Philly and what have you. So they're supposed to come in early, get the wristbands, go back to Philly, distribute the wristbands, and then have everybody come up with wrist. It was madness. So much madness with the wristbands that on the day of the march, after the march had actually started, we did a, uh, an anti wristband march from like, from, uh, the, the resistance contingent. Uh, did an anti-wristband march from like 14th Street and 8th Avenue to our staging area, demanding that the wristbands be dropped. And literally on the spot, they said, okay, no more wristbands. Like they radiated amongst themselves and said, oh, okay, okay, no more, no more wristbands. Earlier from that, I should mention, um, in, uh, January of 2018, the Heritage of Pride reached out to myself and a couple of the other lead organizers of the resistance contingent. The folks had reached out to all these different groups to get them to march together as a resistance contingent. We had about 28 to 32, somewhere in there, different organizations, some new, some old, established, uh, that marched as a part of the resistance contingent. 
uh, they reached out to us, said, do you guys want to do it again? We pulled the different groups and they, everyone was into it. We said, okay, we replied yes. Then we had radio silence for two months. When they came back, when they came out publicly and announced all these different changes that I've just gone over, they told uh, us in the resistance contingent, uh, no, we, we don't want you marching as a contingent. We think that that uh, dissipates your mission by having you all march together. So we want each group to march separately with a float in between. So we, you know, so that was a, that was another big part of why the Reclaim Pride Coalition was, was started. And in the end, they did relent and allow us to march together as a contingent. I'm curious about how, so now you're doing it separately and are you confrontational are, with the police? Are you trying to change the police for all parades, all marches? Are you trying to um, you're trying to influence Heritage of Pride, or trying to let them do not care what they do, or do you want them to kind of come back into the folds of? Well, the truth is, we have influenced them. We have influenced them. Um, last year, uh, they uh, Heritage of Pride announced that they were not going to allow um, uniformed officers, uniformed and armed officers, off-duty officers to march, meaning that the Gay Officers Action League, which actually fought in court against the NYPD for their right to march in uniform in the Pride Parade. That happened in the late 80s, early 90s, maybe. Uh, and so we, um, that had been a part of the ethos that no, no uniformed police officers marching in Queer Liberation March from day one. That was a big, you know, that was one of our big organizing principles. Uh, we also demanded that uh, the NYPD finally apologize to Stonewall, um, something that Heritage of Pride had neglected to do. And uh, in the end, the NYPD did end up the following year, you know, for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, did issue a formal apology a year after we had made that public formal demand with papers being delivered all around. Uh, and then last year, Heritage of Pride did announce that they were no longer going to have uniformed police officers marching. Uh, starting with this year's March, 20, starting with 2022, and they held to that. So we do see that they are coming around somewhat. The other thing that we want to show is, like I was talking about earlier with the barricades, is to put the lie to the way that the NYPD, you know, uh, insists upon providing protection at March that uh, the barricades are completely unnecessary, that uh, the overabundance of police officers were unnecessary. And so, you know, in an average heritage of, average year of the Heritage of Pride Parade, not talking about the, the, um, the onlookers, but the participants, there's about 45,000 people that participate in the Heritage of Pride Parade. Every year that the Queer Liberation March has had, we have had upwards of 40,000 people. And our march is completed. Uh, every single one of those 40,000 people are finished marching within three hours. Whereas a Heritage of Pride Parade takes anywhere from, from seven or eight to 12 hours to um, get completed. So it's like we're showing them that, you know, there is a better way to do this. There is a, a it's better for the participants. It's better for the NYPD because we're not we're not, you know, blocking, um, blocking a major thoroughfare for 12 hours. We're, you know, we're, we're in, we get it done. We get it, you know, we, we don't march in contingents. You know, if you're a part of a group and you want to bring your banner and everybody wants to wear a t-shirt, 
great, you can do that, but we're not going to put a block of space between each and every group. We, you know, the way that I, I look at this, people always talk about the LGBTQ or LGBTQIA plus 2S plus community singular. I always insist on saying it's the LGBTQIA 2S plus communities because there are a thousand different communities of our people around, you know, with um, uniqueness based on all sorts of things, sexuality, based on gender, based on language, based on heritage, based on economics, based on all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, we 364 days of the year, we don't have one community. And for us, the Queer Liberation March is an opportunity to at least for that, those uh, 40,000 or 50,000 people to really march as one community you know, to not be separated from everybody else, to meet people that are not from your background or not from your, um, you know, not from your experiential uh, space and to learn about people and to, and to experience people's differentness and the, the uniqueness and, and the specialness um, that all of that is. And so we just think that what we're doing, which is really what the original Christopher Street Liberation Day March was, is really taking us back to the garden, you know, like putting us back to what it's really all about. Yeah, you just brought me there. And one of the thoughts that goes through my head is one of the great, tell me if this, if, if this is, if I'm on, if this is accurate here, that I think one of the great human experiences, and it shouldn't be this way, but in many, maybe there's something to it, is if I were born not straight, and in some place, not in New York City, in some place where I wasn't recognized and I had to hide it or felt threatened or something like that. If I came to the march in New York, it must be an amazing experience to be suddenly surrounded, to be accepted, to be supported, to see I'm not alone. It must be a great experience. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely spoken to especially young people. Mm -hmm who have, you know, on the day of the, of our march, um, who have never been to a pride march, who are from a small town somewhere, and this is their first experience of pride. And the joy, the appreciation, the excitement that I get, that I've gotten from them is just, it's so heartwarming. You know, it's sort of, it's those moments that really um, make those of us who are on the organizing team really, um, you know, say, yeah, we're doing the right thing. We're doing what's necessary. And the other piece is younger people, like I'm 54, I'll be 55 later this month. Uh, but younger people who say may have moved to New York, say in the last 10 years, you know, over the years, like many of them have like, you know, you know, said, you know, I've been in New York for a long time and this is the first pride I've ever wanted to come to. Um, it's the first Pride March that I've ever wanted to come to. The other one just looked so gross and seeing all those corporate clothes. And, you know, this is what Pride should be, you know. And then conversely, older people, folks that are older than me, folks that did participate in the original Pride Marches in the 70s and early 80s before I even got to New York, you know, but ha who hadn't been back for 20 years, they, you know, are, are coming and saying, this is what we were doing. This is what this is about. This is, you know, this is why I, I wanted to march this year, because this reminds me of when I was 20 years old and I was, you know, brand new and out and I was fighting for our rights and every, you know, and, and the world seemed to be against us. And this was one day when I could feel 
I could feel seen, I could feel heard, and I could feel powerful. I can't help but translate this also in uh, in sustainability. Everyone, there's a lot of um, outrage. Yeah. And one of the things I want to bring is like, and, and also hopelessness and helplessness and shame. And for me, there's a lot of fun. I mean, my fridge has not been plugged in for months. And I'm one of the things I like this morning, I spent, uh, I don't know, an hour because I got, I, I, I got all these vegetables and it's really hot and I don't have any air conditioning. So they're going to go bad really quick. So I got to ferment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm chopping the stuff up and put a little salt on and putting it in. And it's, this is not a burden. This is not, this is what we used to do. This is like, just, I was talking to someone and he's like, look, Josh, I have two refrigerators. That's it. I just need them. And I'm like, I don't think you need them. <laughs> and there's a liberation and freedom and fun. And that's what you're talking. That's what, that's what I'm reacting to is because mm-hmm. partly it's, um, uh, we have to demand, you, if I hear you right, you're saying we have to demand things. It's, uh, yeah. if we don't do this, they're going to creep away at, at, at our rights and it's going to go back to the way it was before. Okay. And it's really fun. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's also setting an example. It's that, you know, it's also show, you know, for us, it's also, you know, it's showing that, and I'm sure for you, you know, you know, as you, if you're, as you're discussing on your podcast, discussing with your friends about the decisions that you've made to, to, to try to live a more sustainable life, you're setting an example. You're showing people that it can be done. It's like, that's how we, that's, you know, how we felt. There have been other, you know, numerous other marches all over the city that have called themselves queer liberation marches or, Reclaim Pride marches. I mean, all over the city, all over the country, um, and in fact, all over the world, that have you know, sort of, you know, said, you know what? Yeah, we can do this. We can reject all that garbage. We can, you know, we you know, no pun intended. <laughs> we can reject all that corporate garbage. I should have said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and do a march that's really that's a people's march rather than something that is a parade celebrating uh, wealth and consumerism and being controlled by the state, we can actually do something that's really of, by, and for the people, um, rather than something with all these impositions from the uh, the powers that be, as it were. Yeah, when you're saying it would be easier for the cops because you won't be blocking a thoroughfare, I'm thinking. I mean, this is just me, but I'm 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 thinking they're like overtime. We're going to get tons and tons of overtime. And so right. if you say making it easier for them, they're like, but we want our overtime. No, and we actually like that too. <laughs> we love the idea of not giving, not giving tons of cops uh, a bunch of unnecessary overtime. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 My taxes are high enough. Yeah. And yeah. now speaking of garbage, mm-hmm. what was it? So I go to Washington Square Park. It was this year, but also last year was uh, the next morning. Mm-hmm. And it's just um, covered with garbage everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And what was it like for me when when you heard from me? Was that was that something? I, I presume it was something on your radar. Oh yeah. Was it something annoying to hear? Was it something you wanted to hear? No, we um, you know, last year's march was uh, had a lot of issues. And it was a lot of last minute issues the last couple of weeks before the march that, you know, where we ended up having to cancel a rally that we had been planning. 
And we uh, lost a ton of volunteers based on people spreading misinformation about the march. People missed, you know, like got into their heads that we were somehow working actively with the NYPD when the truth is that we hadn't had any contact with the NYPD at all, you know, uh, preparing for last year's march. And so we lost a ton of volunteers. And among those volunteers were our, the volunteers that had been signed up to help us deal with garbage in the park. And we lost about two thirds of our volunteers for the day of the March because there was a concerted effort to sort of defame the organization for a, a lot of reasons, you know, some of which I understood from an emotional standpoint, others that were just, you know, uninformed. Um, and others that were malicious. And so, you know, we saw those pictures after last year's March of all of the garbage all over the park. Um, it really saddened us. And we took a lot of heat for it. Um, and kind of rightly so. And that really helped us to really, for this year's March, to at least try to do something to deal with that, to try to um, to limit it as much as we possibly could, you know, so we partnered with the, the Hell's Kitchen Litter Legion, Nasty New Yorkers, the Harlem NYC Trash Project, Clean Up Crown Heights, and Clean Bushwick Initiative for Litter Free Streets. Those five organizations all helped us to gather garbage both on the route and in the, and in Washington Square Park. But the interesting thing is, it's like I, um, was one of the lead marshals on the march. So I was among the very first people to arrive at Washington Square Park when our march ended. Every single waste receptacle in Washington Square Park was already overflowing before the Queer Liberation March even got there this year. It was something I didn't really notice or wasn't paying attention to, but because my, you know, I'd really been, my mind had been really more focused on it. And I'd been working with all these groups to partner with them and stuff like that. I was much more cognizant of it. You know, and so like, you know, to my mind, it's like that's this is the the third year in a row this year that Washington Square Park has become a like a, a big locus point um, for Pride Sunday really was. I don't think it really had been that before so much. But these, you know, after the, the summer of the reckoning in 2020, you know, we ended our march there and it feels like that kind of change something in in the ethos along with all the other uh sort of anti-authoritarian uh gatherings and what have you that have been taking place in the park since that summer of reckoning completely separate from queer liberation march before that were happening before queer, the very first queer liberation march i mean that were happening before that year's so queer liberation march i should say uh you know there's been a change the the Washington Square Park is now a major pride location and the city needs to recognize that and deal with it. Um, they need to have more uh, waste receptacles. They need to like figure out how to have private companies. I don't, I, like, I don't know like what their garbage pickup, you know, schedule is. But, you know, I don't know whether there's like a, a garbage pickup Sunday morning or not. There probably was like probably Sunday morning. All of the waste receptacles were probably empty um, before the first folks got oh, man. to the park. I guarantee I you, know. if we go there right now, they're full right now. They're full right that's, now. They're full all the time. All the time. Right. Yeah. And so and, and that's, 
you know, it's like, it's, it's a major park. It's a major locus point. It's surrounded by a university, you know, with thousands and thousands of young people. Um, and then it's, uh, it's a, it's a gathering place for, you know, for tons more people, uh, that live downtown. And it's like, you see it, you know, there's plenty of spaces in the park that you could add more waste receptacles, you know? And, you know, this is not a poor city. And so you can actually hire people, you know, you could, you know, maybe uh, take somebody from NYPD and hire people to do better sanitation work in the park, you know, throughout the day. And that's, you know, that's not happening. I mean, I know that, was it the Rudens, was it that you put all the money into the park? Um, and I know there's the, the park has its uh, conservancy and, you know, but there's all of these different powerful entities that are involved in the management of Washington Square Park need to do a better job of it. But then we as citizens need to do a better job in terms of the amount of public waste that we produce and put out into the put out into the world. Yeah, that last part I, I will reinforce that uh, people frame it commonly as a not just Washington Square Park, but I, the amount of – I mean there's 10-foot high, 50-foot long piles of garbage all over the city all the time. Mm-hmm. And people frame it as a sanitation issue, but I don't think that any sanitation issue system in the world could keep up with the amount of waste that we're producing. I would guess that when you, when you walked onto the parade the, or the march the first time, uh, when you saw the writers, the, the gay writers, I would bet almost – I bet very few people are carrying plastic water bottles and maybe not even eating food that, you know, our culture has changed that we used to mm-hmm. not eat while walking and not everything was packaged all the time. And the amount of, I mean, plastic is cheaper than ever. And so everything's wrapped up and we can simply say, well, it's being offered for sale. I guess I'll take it. Also, mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of like trinkets that people get for the parade. Mm-hmm. For March that of there's certainly going to be rainbow flags, but they're not kept from year to year. They're not even kept for after uh, like maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. Of course, they exist for 500 years to a thousand years to break down. Yeah, all the crap that corporations throw out from their floats at the, at, the, at the parade and, you know, half of it lands on the street. Nobody touches it. And the other half gets thrown away later by whoever caught it. And even if it, even if it were disposed of, and it all went to a landfill. Mm-hmm. It's already been created. Right. And the money to create it is being used to fund more people being displaced from the land, more wildlife being displaced from the land, more pollution. Uh, and to me, when I see Washington Square Park or any place covered with litter, what I see is I see the mess. But what I really see is that is money being paid to make it more the next time. Mm-hmm. The money, whoever paid for it, right? Whoever, whoever, I mean, there's water fountains in the park, not enough for if there's going to be a large, large number of people there, but I'm thinking of like a regular day. No one's using them. And yesterday, no, it was yesterday, a couple of days ago, I picked up, it was a Fiji water bottle. Mm-hmm. Someone had left there, three quarters full, mm-hmm. shipped 10,000 miles right. in plastic for not even, they didn't even use it. Yeah. And so, but also we have the sort of the lie of recycling to deal with, 
Yeah, it's it's the that, you know you know that everyone that everyone thinks that you know okay it's gonna it's gonna be recycled it's it's made from recycled stuff and it's gonna be recycled again not thinking about all the energy that it takes to like melt down that bottle and do whatever it is that they have to do that manufacturing process to remake them and not even thinking about the fact that uh, you know the some nefarious entities that are in control of uh, garbage and recycling collections are probably not even recycling anything. You know, I just read a book on, um, I didn't know this, water companies, you know, they say they sell water, but they really sell plastic because water is available. Right. Well, right now it's, right now it's available. We don't know how much longer it's going to be available. That's in their interests, right? They want, yeah. that, I mean. The scarcity, yeah. In a systemic perspective, the more that, the more that people move away from, the more that they doubt water civic water mm -hmm. and the more that they use plastic the more flint will happen again mm -hmm. it's it's a cause systemically it causes things like that and also i didn't know this that these water companies they target low-income and uh, communities of color that's where they get more money from it's mm -hmm. because of the there's less confidence in the system in the in government services well and low-income households can't afford Brita filters. It's, it's so nefarious. You know, I mean, that, yeah, yeah. It, and that's the thing that, you know, it's like for, you know, I admire what you've done personally um, in terms of trying to, you know, trying to control, um, you know, going off the grid and trying to, you know. Live by my values. Create, live, yeah, live, by, live fully by your values and live a more sustainable life. But the truth is that our, the way that our society is set up, that's not an option for a single mother of three kids in um, living in a tenement. We have to change the system. That's why we have to change it. Yeah. yeah. If we keep it going the way that it's going, could, I mean, usually it's framed around food. People are like, well, lots of people can't go to Union Square like you can to buy food from the farmer's market. That's why if you can shop at a farmer's market, shop at a farmer's market. And farmer's market sucks. Do not shop at, oh, sorry. And I was going to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have interrupted you. I was going to say, and farmer's markets don't take WIC. They don't take EBT cards, a lot of them. Some, I think there are a few pilot programs here or there around the city that were experimenting with, with uh, being able to take EBT cards for farmer's market produce. But by and large, you can't do it. And so, you know, and, and so, you know, not just the, the expense or the access, it's that, you know, it's they don't make it easy for people on, on fixed incomes, on government assistance, to even be able to avail themselves of something like a farmer's market. And if someone wants to have more farmer's markets serving more communities, the last thing to do is to shop at McDonald's. Yeah. That's going to fund McDonald's and Starbucks and Popeye's and mm -hmm. to extract more wealth from communities and make them more dependent on them. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the whole Bloomberg, uh, the Bloomberg, you know, giant drink law you know that you can't that you know he makes this whole deal oh, 20 ounces yeah, yeah. That, that you can't sell anything it's 20 ounces or more and then while he's doing that while he's making all this hay about doing that he's making a deal with the southland corporation to bring 7-elevens home of the big gulp into manhattan like he oh, i didn't know that oh did you know did, i mean how long have you lived here like there used to be like three 7-elevens in all of manhattan there were three 
And during the Bloomberg administration, he made a deal with the Southland Corporation so that they would open like, you know, I, I think it's hundreds of 7-Elevens all around, mm-hmm. all around New York City, home of the Big Gulf. He literally was doing these two things at the exact same time. For some, as someone who picks up litter every day, mm-hmm. I, I keep kind of a vague tally. I don't keep track scientifically, but Dunkin' Donuts, Seven mm-hmm. Eleven, Starbucks. These are the big ones, and yeah. yeah, Starbucks. And then of the not this not the vendors, but the stuff like Gatorade, mm-hmm. uh, Modelo, Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. But Seven Eleven, at least lots of the other ones. Seven Eleven has this distinction of it being right around their stores are decrepit. It's like Starbucks, it's kind of distributed all over. Mm-hmm. But 7-Eleven, it's like as if people walk out of the store and just drop it on. The same with Dunkin' Donuts, actually. Mm-hmm. It's as if they just drop it right outside the store. So I've actually begun, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for this or not, but I pick it up, open the door and put it in the store. Like if, if I see like a, a, a big gulp, uh-huh. I put it in the store. Uh, uh, this is yours. <laughs> I yeah. think this is yours. <laughs> it's also something I think about with Washington Square Park. I mean, just because I'm there every day, mm-hmm. but all the places around there sell stuff that people sell, all the food places that sell food, sell it in disposable stuff mm-hmm. that people take to the park, mm-hmm. but none of them have garbage cans themselves because mm. they all know that there's too much garbage, that they're, they're creating all this garbage. And so it's stuck on us right. that most of it doesn't make it. I don't know. A lot of it doesn't make it in the cans. The stuff that even makes it in yeah. the cans is like taxes and it all overflows mm-hmm. and they're all profiting from and, and deliberately not collecting their own garbage or the garbage yeah. that they profit from. Mm-hmm. So that to me is why it's such a, it's, it's a supply issue yeah. and it's not, it shouldn't, whether we like it or not, as long as we keep accepting it and funding it and paying for it, mm-hmm. it's going to happen more and more and more. And mm-hmm. some, it's got to start somewhere. I mean, I'm trying to get it started of don't, yeah. we, we don't buy the stuff in the first place. Yeah. And, uh, I hope to work with you next this year. I, I, I finally reached you like two weeks before or like, like within a month of, of it. And like, yeah, yeah. Was uh, you were very uh, polite, but I could tell there was a lot of stress going on of like a lot of things. I'm put on a parade here, Josh. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. You're much more calm now. It's uh, yeah. I mean, you're handling it fine, but <laughs> I can tell there's a weight off your shoulders this time. Yeah. But I hope next year to get in touch with you significantly. Well, not to lose touch, but um, yeah, no, yeah, I would love to. Yeah, we'd love to, like you know, figure out, you know, work with you to maybe create some, you know, good sort of messaging, uh, figuring out ways to to get supplies. I mean, granted, we don't know that we're necessarily going to be ending our march at Washington Square Park next year. Um, although it does kind of seem like it's become like, you know, the norm out of the four, out of the four core liberation marches, all three of the last, you know, the last three have all ended in Washington Square Park. Uh, but yeah, to just to figure out ways that we can, you know, sort of message people about exactly that. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll sell some of those metallic, uh, you know, drink holders or I don't, I don't know, to figure out ways that we can get people to, to limit 
the amount of, of garbage that they themselves generate on the day of the march and afterward. You know, but you know, it's you know, the the city does not make it easy. You know, even if you have a licensed restaurant that is going to be providing food in the park, you know, fresh prepared food that doesn't have to like be put into plastic or whatever. There's a whole rigmarole that they have to go through to get to get a special license to be able to provide that, even if they're giving it away Mm -hmm. to provide that food in the park. You know, so they make it they make it difficult to to do it. But I would love we'd love to work with you you know, to, to figure out ways that we can encourage better, uh, more sustainable, more reactive uh, choices. And more fun. And more fun. <laughs> more home cooks. And yeah, I'll share something that I think this doesn't work as a starting point. So, but I'll say it anyway, where, when I'm, if someone offers me plastic, you know, some container, my thought is the people on the receiving end of it, and they may be in the South Pacific, they may be in a cancer alley or some sacrifice zone. This country has cancer alley. Oh, I know. This country has sacrifice zones, and it's going to reach them. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that. Now, if I say that to most people, they're like, oh, Josh, uh, it's like too much for a lot of people at the start. No, I learned that very early on as a kid, the way that, um, you know, about cancer clusters. So my mother um, survived breast cancer. And before my mother was diagnosed with it, about 15 to 20 other black women in her friend, in our friend and family circle uh, had, had been diagnosed with breast cancer over, say, like the three years before my mother's, three or four years before my mother's diagnosis. And so it was very clear that, you know, there's, there's something going on. So that we're talking about the environment, about the problems. What about the environment? What does the environment mean to you? What do you think about when you think about not the problems, mm-hmm. but what you love about it? Love about the environment. Well, it keeps me alive. Um, <laughs> like what's your experience of it? Like if you think of yourself in nature, different people, it's different places. Like where, where is it for you? The ocean. Oh yeah. Um, I'm, I, yeah, I'm a, I, I grew up, uh, I just said Virginia, I grew up in Tidewater, Virginia, Hampton Roads, um, an area that has like 15 different names for like the same, like, you know, hundred square miles. Um, uh, and so you know, being on the Chesapeake Bay, being on being on the Atlantic Ocean, uh, communing with that um, is it's my it's my my soul place. You know, I mean, I love to, don't get me wrong. I love to climb a tree in a park. Uh, you know, nowadays in New York, there are no trees that you can climb because they've sawed off all the lower branches. Uh, but growing up, I was a big tree climber, um, you know, and love, you know, love the country, love tromping through the woods. I grew up with, with woods across the street from my house. And that was you know, one of my, you know, one of my great places to go as a, as a young kid was just to go, go exploring in the woods. But, um, when I think about the, you know, the place that nourishes me, the, the experience that nourishes me, it's, uh, it's the beach. It's the, mo- it's the beach. It's the ocean. It, it's the most healing, um, energizing experience for me personally. When you say on the, on the ocean, are you, and a boat, or do you mean like just on the coast? Or 
swimming. No, that's my body, my body, and my body in the in the water. Yeah. Oh, just swimming yeah. there, like the, yeah, the feeling, the feeling of, of the waves, the movement, the 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 power of the ocean. Like I like you know, I mean you know, don't do this at home, kids. But I love a rough, I love a rough current. I love being buffeted by waves. I love that that gives it. You know, we all come from the ocean, right? Like you know, all life on this planet comes from the ocean. And there's this sort of very, this very primal, this primal energy in the ocean that just isn't duplicated in any other mode of, of, of physicality, of physically being somewhere on this planet. And it's, it's just beautiful. When you say primal, that implies, what's the emotion that you're feeling? Connection. Connection to the earth. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost, the, it's the feeling of having, having been away from your home for a long period of time and then coming back. Mm. You know, you may have enjoyed wherever you were, but that, that sense of, that sense of rootedness, of belonging is nowhere for me as powerful as, as, as being in the sea. Is that the same if you go out to the Rockaways as compared to Chesapeake Bay? It could be any ocean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like I like you know I could not imagine myself living in Ohio mm. or Kansas or any not just because of politics but anywhere that landlocked. I could not imagine myself being. I have to be near the ocean. You know, so I could perhaps move to California or Oregon or, or, or Washington State or, or any island anywhere, um, you know, or even Florida, I could deal with it. Um, but yeah, it's like the ocean is just, it's a core thing for me. Based on these emotions that you described, the primal, the beauty, the connection, I invite you, if you're up for it, mm-hmm. to think of something to do to act on those feelings in your life. Uh, long-term, short-term is up to you, but to manifest those things in some way and share how it went. And just to clarify, a lot of people, when they want to hear me say this, they think, what am I, I'm asking them, what can I do to help the environment? And it's not to help the environment. Oh, it's not, not, but it's, the point is to, is to bring those about in your life in some way that you're not already doing with three constraints. If something you're not already doing, something you do with your own hands that you do yourself, Mm-hmm. And something that has some physical component, so that um, not just reading a book or watching a documentary. And if you're up for it, to we'd have to think of it. most people. Every now and then, someone's like, "Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do right off the bat." But usually, it takes a bit of back and forth. Mm-hmm. Would you be game to think of something to do? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that I that I do and I've always done is I clean up. I clean up litter when I'm at the beach. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when, when I see it, when I, when I'm passing by, if I'm doing a, doing a beach walk on the shoreline and I see a plastic bag half buried in the sand, I'll pick it up and take it back to my area and, you know, put it with, you know, whatever, um, put it in my bag or, or whatever to get rid of. Or if there's a waste receptacle there, I'll, I'll, I'll do that as well. You know, I've moved garbage cans, uh, further away at when I've been late at a beach and seeing the tide coming in and realize that this garbage, somebody was supposed to move this so that the tide doesn't, uh, doesn't put all that garbage into the ocean. I'll do that. So that, you know, cause I love it so much. That is something that I do, but I definitely, um, I'm definitely open to the idea of, you know, 
thinking about more things that I can do. Is there something you could do to bring that ethos, that those feelings, where you are here now, or you know, or then mm-hmm. in, to bring that to where you are? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, clean up litter in the city. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, and when and when I when I'm able to, I do. You know, I don't. But you know, I don't, for instance, walk around with plastic with. <laughs> plastic gloves you know in my bag that i can slap on to you know to to pick up you know if i come across some place where because you do in the city right you come across places where uh you know somebody was out really 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 late the night before and there's like three bottle you know three broken bottles of you know that booze you know that booze was in or uh you know and and you know a, a spilt pile of uh or spilt mcdonald's bag or you know whatever you find on the street where like mm-hmm. something weird happened here late at night and now there's all this garbage in this one place that's clearly somebody was having a party or something sometimes i you know i'll do things for a public from a public safety perspective a lot you know sometimes i will drag something out of the street if i think that it could cause an accident or i'll you know or i'll or if, if, if i if I see a bunch of broken glass, I will try to at least, you know, get it out of the way of passing traffic so some little kid doesn't fall on it and cut themselves or a dog doesn't like cut their paw or something like that. But I will, you know, there are probably ways that I could do better in that realm of trying to, you know, directly, you know, pick up litter off the streets. Well, picking litter off the streets, if that connects with picking up off the beach, that only you know if that connection is there, but mm-hmm. it's not, I'm not necessarily saying help the world or help the environment. I'm saying that feeling buffeted, that feeling returning home, that feeling mm. of that's the thing to manifest, which if the, if that connection is there in your heart, then it's there, but it's, it feels like you're almost saying, Oh, I should do some more things, but it's not, this isn't about should. Mm-hmm. This is about, um, or maybe it's the climbing trees or, you know, something about the, the, the feelings that you got from nature. Mm-hmm. Most of us. Well, that, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and that, that is, that, I will cut to that because, you know, the being deep into nature, being away from, uh, you know, from buildings and from roads and streets and bridges and things like that, being in, in places that are, you know, that are, that are purely natural. You know that would be second to the ocean mm-hmm. uh, in spaces that uh, give me give me energy, um, for lack of a better term. And so, I mean, I would yeah. I mean, that's and, and like the ocean, those moments when I can have those uh, moments of communing with nature, or communing with the ocean, are, are sadly few and far between. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I definitely could use a little bit more of it. What comes to mind is, is there a way you can make that happen without leaving, like on a, without going far away with, you know, on a daily basis? To get that emotional need and emotional connection? I don't mean on a daily basis, like make a habit of it, but I mean like, um, yeah, could you manifest it locally? Um, well, I mean, you know, Going into Central Park sometimes gives me that that feeling if I go deep into Central Park, you know, where that 
where I really do feel um, secluded. But then Central Park has a whole lot of baggage, and so then that you know that that intrudes on that. You know the fact that you know communities of color were destroyed in order for it to be built. You know things like that. Um, so for me, it's a very tactile thing. It's lit. You know, it's. I don't know if you do. You, do you recall Brooke Astor? Do you know who she was? Yeah, she passed away not long ago. She was like a yeah. well-known socialite. I guess is how I think of her. Yeah, yeah, very well, very well-known socialite. Very um, wrote a few books, whatever. Um, I, I always remember that which one of the things that she loved to do was to hug trees, uh-huh. and you know, and just that you know, and and I completely get that, and I understand that. You know, I, I um, when I have a tree that I'm regularly around you know i i treat them like a friend mm-hmm. um you know i call them friend tree <laughs> and uh but i you know i always re- i always remember that you know she would you know she would you know they'd have a little news story about her and she'd like you know go and put her arms around the tree or whatever and you know there is there is something in the tactile there is something in the um the physical connection that fosters the emotional, the spiritual, the psychological connection. And so there are times when I, you know, there are, are ways in which I, you know, I can have a slight, a slight sort of exercise of that need for connection in nature, even if it's just a, a tree on my block and uh, one of those horrible two and a half foot by two and a half foot little or three foot by three foot little uh iron gated thingies squares where the trees grow from yeah yeah (laughs) you know and so yeah i do you know i i haven't in a while i spend more of my time inside um of late i need to do i need for myself i need to do a better job of, of of getting out a little bit more uh the pandemic has uh definitely um triggered some latent hermetic genes in me mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you know it's like okay i'm not going out you people are disgusting i want nothing to do with you <laughs> you're going to infect me with something now there's the monkey pox um you know so it's like there is and being having having brought up an only child and something of a latchkey my mom worked um for most of the time outside of the home. Um, when I was a little bit older, she uh, had a shop in a, a trailer in our backyard. And so she worked from home, but, but uh, my, you know, from about seven or eight until around 13 or 14, when she opened that, when she uh, did that shop, she, um, you know, I was, you know, very much a latchkey and an only child. And so inside television being my companion or books or reading encyclopedias or whatever. And so, so that's there and so this whole last couple of years uh-huh. has sort of re-engaged that that part of me that you know sort of got lost you know when i you know got older and had my after school job and was involved in theater and you know and then being 18 in new york and going out to nightclubs all the time in the 80s all that you know it kind of got lost but the um you know outside of a few hangovers here and there but the um, the pandemic definitely brought that back to me, so <laughs> so I could probably nourish my spirit a little bit more by by uh, trying to get away from uh, get away from that hermetic instinct. That's what this is. That's what this is about. I'm not saying don't pick up litter, 
But if there was some Brooke Astor inspired type thing mm -hmm. that you could do however temporarily and then come back and share how it went, that's what, most people at first they're like not really sure. And, and then when they hit on something, they're like, oh, you know, I've been meaning, I've actually been meaning to do that for a while. Mm -hmm. And so if this is something that prompts you to do something you've been meaning to do, mm -hmm. that's perfect. Yeah, I'll definitely, yeah, I'll definitely, uh, I'll think about it a little bit. Yeah, because I'm sure there are things. Well, the next step is to make it a smart goal, a specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. Right. And I'm going to persist a bit here to see if you can come, if someone doesn't come up with it in the call, uh -huh. then all the nice intent disappears when the call ends because people are busy. Right. Hmm. And it can be a one-time thing. It can be a habitual, habitual thing that keeps, continues. But mm -hmm. for most people, it's short-term. Hmm. Well, it starts short-term and then they often tend to continue it, but that's not part, that's up to them. Hmm. Well, it's difficult right now because I'm unemployed and very poor, um, but because uh, everything costs money in this town. Mm -hmm. But there, you know, if, you know, I was a little bit better financially off. I'd probably do some, you know, I, I'd probably do something simple. It's not particularly expensive, but now it is like doing, going and getting a rowboat and rowing in, in, the, in Central Park. That's uh, so, something I you used know, to. It's free on the Hudson River. What, the, with the kayaks? The kayaks, yeah. The, are they free? They're free. Oh, I didn't know they were free. I thought you had to rent them. Free 20 minutes. It's awesome. Oh, I'll definitely. That sounds like a great idea. I look, yeah, because I still love uh, row, doing the rowboat Central Park. I'll look into that. I'm, I'm, I have my phone balanced on my laptop screen and I am typing into my laptop screen uh, kayaking. Is it, it's kayaking, right? Or is, are yeah. they robots kayaking? It's kayaking and they're like, they're not, you know, they're hard plastic. They're not like uh -huh. deluxe, <laughs> but, you know, they. Plastic! Sorry. Oh, they float. <laughs> and All there's right. like a, there's these buoys awesome. that you're not allowed to go past, but within those buoys, it's like a fair amount of space. And you, they have double kayaks and single kayaks. Oh, cool. And I'm, that's a great, that's something that I would love to do. So is that? That's something I would definitely love to do. That's my thing. Okay. Then. That's my thing. And I live in Chelsea, so it's. Right there. Really easy. Uh, yeah. All this time I thought that you had to pay for it. So then um, could, could, would you come back a second time and share how the experience went? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Then, and um, how long would that be? Well, after, before, after you stop recording and before we hang up. Okay. Uh, can we schedule a second conversation? Yeah, yeah totally. Okay. Uh, I haven't kayaked yet this year. Maybe I'll go with you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fine. I'm, I'd totally be down for that. And we could kayak and then, uh, and then pick up some litter together. And pick up some litter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can pick up some litter from the Hudson while we're kayaking. Sadly, yeah. Hey. It's, there's plenty. I know. I know. Is there anything anything I didn't think to ask before? And now we'll, we'll talk again. So I propose picking up here next time. Yeah. But uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask that uh, we should have brought up? Or anything anything you want to say to the listeners? I can't think of anything. Uh, except uh, if you like the whole idea of the Queer Liberation March, uh, you can join us as a volunteer. And if you can't join us as a volunteer, um, you can find this on Instagram at, at Queer March. And there are links so that you can donate, find out more about us, sign up to volunteer, sign up to come to meetings, all that sort of stuff. So if anyone um, is interested in, in doing that, find us at Queer March on Instagram and on, on the Twitter links. And is that year round or is that picking up more as, it, as June approaches? 
No, we we kind of work on things all year round. We meet every every week. Uh, when we first started, the first summer or two, we took off the month of August. But last summer and this summer, we're we're meeting regularly straight through. Yeah, we we there's a lot of work that needs to get done leading up to it. Fundraising is a big thing, um, but there's also um, a lot of planning that goes into it. Um, and we basically start the campaign for the next June in September. Okay. Well, Jay Walker, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. It was I had a great conversation. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.